verse 26 is where we're going to start. And um, as you know, we teach here verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And uh, this will close out chapter 23 this week, and then we'll go to chapter 24. Uh, uh, someone was asking me, I can't remember who, how long they were thinking it would be before we move into the next book. I think chapter 24 will do uh, all in one week, and that means... Two weeks from today, we're going to start the book of Revelation, verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation, so if you want to read ahead, you can, and um, as you guys can imagine, we take a, a, a literalist point of view. There's a lot of figurative language in there, and we're going to take that figurative language literally, um, and, and the cool thing about it is, is, is the Old Testament is a key that unlocks for us that figurative language, that figurative representation that we read in the, um, in the book of Revelation. And so if you want to familiarize with the book of Revelation, go read the five, first five books of the Old Testament in the next two weeks and get prepared. Because a lot of the, the representation that we read about is spoken of and borrowed as John is given this vision and the Lord uh, makes these things known to him. It's the key that unlocks things. And I love that because we don't have to go, well, I think it means this, and I think it means that. Uh, what we adhere to is the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And if the Bible speaks to something, that's what we're going to use as our authority. So that's how we'll plan on going through the book of Revelation. But this morning we're in Luke chapter 23. Um, uh, just a little quick introduction, and then we'll, we'll pray, and then we'll get into the text. Last week, was we, we started to go chapter 23, made it through verse 25. In the first verses of this chapter, we are told that, if you remember, Jesus was rested in the Garden of Gethsemane, there in the Mount of Olives. And he was first, um, uh, he was brought to uh, the Ananias' house, and then Caiaphas, the, the kind of the dual high priest situation there at the time, we spoke to that. And then by the Jewish Sanhedrin, the official court uh, of, of the, the nation of Israel, uh, a member, uh, 70 so members of Jewish elders, both of the um, uh, Pharisaical uh, sect and of the Sadduc- Sadducee uh, uh, sect. And uh, he was tried by them. He was, sent, he was condemned to death. And then the whole multitude of them, if you remember, we read about that, led him away to Pontius Pilate to be sentenced by a Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, who was the governor over Judea. Did anybody go and do any research on the archaeological evidence that I spoke to about the, the Pilate stone? Anybody do that? Yeah, a few of you. I know Virgil did. Virgil was prepared for his home group and brought all this awesome information out. Uh, some stuff he brought out, and some of I'm like, okay, I'm going to use that. That's good information. But uh, go check it out, guys. All you got to do is a quick Google search, and you'll see it. I love it because uh, what archaeologists have found and discovered supports what we've been studying. Exactly, that Pontius Pilate was the governor, a Roman governor, the fifth governor over the region of Judea during this specific time. And that, that stone that they found has uh, got these, this engraving in it of all these Judean governors at this time perfectly correlates and, 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 and coordinates with what we're reading here. Perfectly. Now, as we talk about these religious leaders, we know that even though they found Jesus guilty and um, 
even testified against him. They, they just didn't bring Jesus to Pilate. They, they testified against him. They brought accusation after accusation. Remember, Pilate would be like, I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him. And then they would just levy another accusation. Even more vehemently, it would said. And even though they testified against him as he was tried by Pilate, we know that Pilate declared Jesus three different times to be without fault, that there is no fault in him. Nevertheless, Pilate eventually consented, capitulated to the demands of the religious leaders, and he sentenced Jesus to be crucified as they requested. And when we ended last week, I pointed out that all of these events, even though we look at it from man's point of view and read it as a historical account and, 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 and kind of process it in, the thing I wanted to leave you with is that all of these events had taken place in accordance to God's divine plan. It was in accordance to God's divine plan that Jesus... Um, was not crucified because evil men decided to get him out of the way. Rather, his crucifixion was an appointment that had been made from eternity. And it was all done for us. Furthermore, the trial and the death of Jesus Christ, as I, as I kind of wrapped things up last week, I pointed out that it reveals both the wicked hearts of men, of mankind, as we read about some, some purely evil and wicked things that were done against Christ. But it also reveals, I think more importantly, the very same events that we read here, it reveals the gracious heart of God. It reveals the gracious heart of God. Because when men were doing their worst, God was giving his best. And in the remaining verses, now as we look at the rest of this chapter, the remaining verses of this chapter, which records the actual crucifixion of Jesus, we continue to see the gracious and the forgiving heart of God. So as we begin to read, I'd like to pray. This morning as we pray for the other churches in our community, this week if we can pray for the, the Bridge to Life Church. As you guys know, I've mentioned it before, the pastor there is Dan Limitoni, and uh, we have brothers and sisters who go to that church who love Jesus, and we want to pray for them and pray for their uh, encouragement today as well as their witness and testimony and influence into the community that we live. So if you'll bow your heads with me, we'll pray this morning together. Lord, Thank you for this time together. Thank you, God, that you love us, that you've sent your son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, the Messiah, the Anointed One, and hopefully also our Lord to die on the cross for us. That um, he canceled out the debt that we owed so that we might um, enter into your presence, that we might live again in your presence. And Lord, as we read about the crucifixion, the things that Christ spoke, the things that were spoken against him, and of the people who spoke to him during this time. I pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged, that we would um, find application for our own lives. Lord, that we would be changed in the inner man, in our hearts, in our minds. I love what Apostle Paul writes about being transformed, not being conformed. To this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind. And we know, God, that takes place through the reading and study of your word as your Holy Spirit ministers to us. And I pray that would happen this morning. And for these same requests, Lord, we ask that they would be true for our brothers and sisters at the Bridge to Life Church. For Pastor Dan and the rest of the leadership there, for the worship team, Lord, that they would gather together and be encouraged, Lord. They'd be strengthened. They would be renewed to um, fight the good fight, to walk the walk, to run the race that, they've, that you've set before them, Lord, that they would walk 
um, in accordance to the good works, Lord, that you pointed before them and that they would be blessed and that those around them would be blessed. I just pray for all the churches in our community, Lord, as we see violence being waged against Christians and even in our churches like we saw a few weeks ago in the, in the uh, Church of Christ Church in Texas. And we pray for protection over our church. We thank you for our security team and others like them all over who are willing to stand as a first line of protection, Lord, as you've called them to be a sheepdog for the sheep. And Lord, we pray for protection and we pray for your will. And Lord, mostly now I ask God that um, I would get out of the way, that you, that I would be an open mouth, that I would be willing, Lord, so that um, you would speak through me to us. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, verse 26. It says, Now they led him away, and they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And we'll stop there. And the truth is, if I felt a little bit more comfortable with this, with this I, would, I would not leave this one verse all morning long. But I want to get through the rest of the text. So hopefully I won't spend too much time here. But I want to point out as we look at this one verse and, and, and before we get into the rest of what we're going to do here in this chapter, I want to point out that all, I love this. We don't see this, this same thing true in all the gospel accounts. And you know, we have the the gospel accounts are called the synoptic gospels, meaning they complete one another, and lots of times events that aren't recorded in one are recorded in one or the two or the others, and a different perspective is given, and all of it fits together perfectly to tell the whole story. And, and yet rarely, what, every once in a while, is what we'll see is, is that all four of the gospel accounts will tell of a specific events. They'll record a specific event. And this event which we read about here in verse 27 is recorded in all of them except for John all three except for John and 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 I don't know the reason for why but the fact that this three times that we're told about Simon of Cyrenian and 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 what he uh was commissioned to do this event it's significant and um what we know is that when you study Roman history and the crucifixion, is that part of the, the prisoner's sentencing was not, and the crucifixion, it was, it was not just to die on a cross, but it was to die a humiliating death. And, and, and we know that in um, uh, the, the, the movie that just came out not too long ago, that uh, the suffering of the Passion of the Christ, and when you see the depictions of Jesus Christ on the cross, you see him girded with like a, 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 a loincloth or something like that wrapped around him. That was not the case with Roman crucifixions. You were stripped and you were naked. It was part of the humiliation process. And, and, and not only were the Romans um, uh, masters at, at killing people in a very painful and, and way that they suffered, but it was also a humiliation. And we, and this is, this, we understand this more um, and, and the, the significance of it when we go to the book of Philippians chapter 4, and it tells us that, that he endured the humiliation of the cross, right? And, and that God has, as a result, not for, but in the book of Philippians it says that, and God has raised him up, elevated him up, given him the name above all names. So it wasn't just the death on the cross, it was the humiliation. This is the king of kings, Lord of lords, God in the flesh. 
And so part of the prisoner's humiliation through this whole process is that the, hum- the prisoner was forced or is made to carry his own cross to the place of execution. And when Jesus left Pilate's hall, there in the Antonio Fortress where he was tried, when we read about that last week, he was probably carrying more than likely just the crossbeam. That's, that's, that's typically what historians record, the crossbeam rather than the whole cross, considering the, the upright um, part of the, 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 the beams of the cross that went into the ground that, they, they weighed, that would have weighed up to 300 pounds. And, and um, you know, there's not very many of us that would even be able to move a 300-pound piece of wood. Uh, maybe Mike Phillips. I don't know about anybody else here. But I work out with that guy, so I think he could do it. But, um, and they were usually permanently fixed in a visible place outside of the city walls, usually beside a major road as, as, a, as a warning, Right? And, and even though Jesus would have only been carrying the cross beam, um, we read that he was unable to do so. He was unable to carry it the whole distance. And soldiers then forced this man. This man mentioned in verse 26, by the name of Simon, who was coming, it says, from the country into the city to carry the cross for Jesus. And when we consider the, mul- the, 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 the multiple beatings that we've read about up to this point that he, that he endured, when we consider them, and, and, and put that even alongside the Roman scourging that, that, I, that I talked about also last week that Jesus had endured, all these things since his arrest in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, there in the Mount of Olives, is understandable. It's understandable why he was not physically able to carry the weight of this cross, this cross beam, all the way up to Calvary, where they crucified him. And in verse 26, as we read about, we're not told a whole lot about Simon in any of the other gospel accounts that mention him. We're, we're just given really these brief, brief little insights, but it tells us that Simon was a, a Cyrenian, and, um, which meant he was from a Greek colony in Libya. That's where the Cyrenians were from. He was in a Greek colony from Libya, which, in, and get this, it was about 800 miles away. This guy was a devoted Jew. We talked about that the Jews would return at certain times, these great feasts to celebrate, and Passover was the biggie. It was, it was the, the, the feast of all the feasts to attend. And it was 800 miles away, and he would have traveled all the way from there. And we know that the city was packed, and even Jesus would sleep during this time outside of the city. And so he was in the country. He had probably been there for a, a, a few days there to celebrate during the whole Passover week, the, 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 the Passover feast, and he was camping out in the country. And, and when we consider um, uh, the, the, the record or... Uh, the historical record, it's likely that Simon was one of the direct descendants of 100,000, history teaches us, there was 100,000 Judean Jews, okay, 100,000 Judean Jews who had fled from Judea and took refuge in Cyrene in Libya when Ptolemy, you guys have heard of Ptolemy, right? Ptolemy Solter or Sodder, um, one of Alexander the Great's generals, well, he invaded Judea in 320 B.C. And, and, and I know that these things are not spiritual truths, but I point these things out to, again, Simon of Cyrene. And, and we're told that because it's mentioning a real place, and there has historical context and a historical connection to the Jews that we can look outside of Scripture and see. And it's, it should build your faith. We have a reasonable faith, again, 
And, and what we read is truth. And there is evidence after evidence after evidence to show these things to us as far as why we can believe what it says. And if we can, if we can rest our faith in, it, faith in it and believe in what it says, then you know what? Then we can live our lives by it. And, and all the more so, we should have not only a, 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 a response, we should have more of a responsibility to do so when we see and believe these things to be true. Now, it was not uncommon, as I said, for a Jew to travel back to Israel in order to celebrate the Passover. And this was probably the reason why he traveled the 800 miles from Africa, Cyrene, Libya, to Jerusalem. And more than likely, Simon was heading back into the city. And more than likely, it would have been around 9 a.m. And the reason why I mention that is because that's when everything would begin for the day. It's when the morning prayer at the temple would take place and the priest would light the incense. We talked about this when we went through the book of Exodus, and I want to recount that. But there's a whole procedure that took place regularly on schedule. And, 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 and the, the incense would be, pray, be lit. And if you remember, the incense was a sign of the prayers of the people rising up before God. And so 9 a.m. is when that took place. And more than likely, Simon was heading in there to get there in time to be able to pray. And after all, that's, that's more than likely the reason why he'd come. But before he reached the city, get this, he's walking in. He's kind of minding his own business. He's coming to the temple to pray. You know, he's probably completely aware of some of the unrest that's been going on in the city with Jesus. And he may have even been one of the people in the crowd to witness Jesus riding in on the donkey when they were singing Hosanna. The whole city was aware of what had been going on. This was public. Jesus had been in the temple, remember, and he had been teaching. He had driven out the, 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 the men who were making change and selling the animals. And, uh, and, he, and so Jesus had made a presence at this point. And so Simon probably, just like everybody, was aware to some degree of what had been going on and who this Jesus was. We don't know for sure what his relationship to Christ was at this point in regards to belief or not. But, but he... Coming into the city was greeted by this multitude of people who were walking out of the city. And, and at this time, he was physically taken a hold of and turned around. We might call that a U-turn. Right, guys? An encounter with Jesus and his life was U-turned. Heading one direction and man, he got put back on that road head in another. And it's a really cool thing. I want to share some stuff with you about that. But um, he was turned around to head the other direction with this, with the cross. With the cross put on his back, the cross that Jesus Christ would be crucified on. So without a doubt, this task of carrying a condemned man's cross, which would have been a humiliating thing, I think it's safe to say this was not what Simon was expecting that morning when he had headed into Jerusalem. But this experience brought Simon in contact with Jesus. This experience brought Contact, brought Simon in contact. He had no longer just heard of him, perhaps, or, or maybe even seen him off from a distance. Now it's personal. Now it's intimate. Now even on some level, it's relational. He put him in a contact with Jesus, and it appears that this event 
led to Simon's conversion. We're not told about it. We have to kind of draw some lines in between some dots that the Bible connects to us. But the reason why I think we can make that conclusion is because in Mark chapter 15, verse 21, this very Simon is identified as the father of two sons, Alexander and Rufus. And these two sons are referred to in the gospel as, as, as people whom other believers in the early church would have known. You can go and read it and see. And so apparently, I think the logical conclusion in this, not that we're trying to interpret Scripture on our own and make some stuff up, but you can, you can use your brain. God wants you to use your brain, too, when you come to him. And, 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 and apparently, Simon and his two sons became well-known Christians in the early church by what we read in the Gospel of Mark. And, and, and certainly, this encounter had to have an influence on him. And without a doubt, Simon, think about it, Simon, who was willing to travel from Africa to Israel 800 miles in order to celebrate the Passover, he already was a religiously devoted man, right? And he was concerned and interested in spiritual things. But as is the case with every person, listen, this morning, listen, religious devotion, apart from faith in Jesus Christ, means nothing, Religious devotion, apart from Jesus Christ, means nothing. And this is because the Bible is clear when it teaches us that the requirement for the forgiveness of our sins and for an entrance for us into heaven is ultimately and only for us to put our faith in Jesus Christ. You've heard it before, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, right? It clearly states this saying, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it goes on to add this part in because God knows what we're all like and we know what we're all like too. And he says, it's not that of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Why? Not of works. Because he says, you'd boast lest anyone should boast. And that's not the only reason. There was nothing we could do anyway. Not enough good works, not, not anything. It's perfection. And that's not possible for us. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. And even though... and. And, 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 and trust me, even if we knew it wasn't perfection, if we somehow thought, well, God grades on the curve. By the way, he doesn't grade on the curve like your fourth grade math teacher. It's the only way I passed math, grading on the curve. But, but even though the salvation that God offers to us is a free gift, which is given to those who put faith in Jesus and the work that, that he did to pay the debt for our sins. And, and forever, more importantly, forever, we, we like to say that, that he paid the debt for our sins, and he did. But you know what? That, that's, it's, it, it's more than just paying a debt. He canceled it out, the Bible said. He wiped it out. There's no longer a record of your wrongdoing before God for those of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ. That's an awesome thing. God's all, what's in? What's in? But he wiped out the record of our sin with the sacrifice of his death, uh, with his own life. And the fact of the matter is, is when we put our faith in Jesus and commit to following him, now here's here where it gets real and what we read about with Simon here is that, is that when we commit to following him as one, of our, as one of his disciples, listen guys, it requires us to do as Simon had done. In other words... We have to pick up our cross, and we have to follow after him. Remember, Jesus had said back in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 26, if anyone desires to come after me, I'm assuming that's all of us this morning, that's why we're here. 
even if you're brand new, even if you're uncertain this morning about this man named Jesus Christ, you're here because there's a certain amount of desire, at least a little bit, that God's put before you in your heart, in your mind to go, should I follow this guy or not? Bible says that if this is you, if anyone desires to come after me, Luke chapter 9, verse 23, he says this. It gets real. He says, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, we know what that means as believers, what it means to pick up your cross, but, but, but Luke goes on, and, 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 or Jesus goes on, and Luke, and he explains that. He makes it clear. He says this. He says, forever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And man, this is so contrary to the world's way of thinking, right? And that's why Jesus spells it out. And he goes on and he says this, as he reasons with us in regards to this desire to follow after him and what he says we must do, he says, and I love it that God says even, come let us reason together. Again, this, this desire that we have and this call to follow after God isn't just this heartfelt thing where it's based in emotion only. God says, come let us reason together. And speaking about your sin and about being made white as snow and purified and cleansed, he, he goes on and he, he, he reasons with us, Christ does, as he speaks this, this need for us, this, this unescapable truth to take up our cross. He says, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and he himself is destroyed or lost for all eternity to an eternal death? And he goes on to say this, and we're going we're gonna, to, this is important, keep this in mind because we're going to end about, end this morning talking about not being ashamed. And he goes on, he says, he says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him, the Son of Man, will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his, and in his fathers and in the holy angels. The point is, is, the putting, is that putting our faith in Jesus is more than just saying we believe. It's the action of relying upon, clinging to, and trusting in him as the Lord, your Lord, my Lord, our Lord. And if he's the Lord, then we do what he says. We go where he wants us to go. We pick up our cross and we follow him and we deny ourselves, deny our life. And in doing so, Jesus says, that's when you're going to live. And you guys know it to be true. Not only in regards to eternity and salvation, as the Lord says, I give you life and life abundantly, but even in this life, when I choose to do things my way, when I take off that, that cross, if you will, figuratively speaking, and go, I'm going to live for Sean today, you know what? It doesn't go well. It may go well for a little while, but ultimately, the Bible says there's a way that seems right to man, and its end is death. And the Bible is true. The end is destruction. And if you haven't reached that place yet, doing it your way, seeking to save your own life, Keep on going. You'll find it. You'll find the destruction. But I'm telling you now that there is a way that leads to life. And Jesus is that way. And when we do this, when we, when we cling to him, when we rely upon him, when we trust him as Lord, you know what we do when we do that? We stop pursuing the life that we once lived. A U-turn. Like Simon a U-turn. We stop pursuing the life that we once lived, the life that our flesh wants to live, and we turn around to do what? To start living for God. Which means we now live our lives according to His will because this is the place that leads to life and the place that leads to life more abundantly.
and we're only through one verse. <laughs> verse 27, and a great multitude of the people followed him and, and women who also mourned and lamented. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children, for indeed the days are coming in which you will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore and the breasts which never nursed. And they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the greenwood, what will be done in the dry. Now, as we continue reading on here in verse 27, you get the big picture, okay? We're told that there's this great multitude of people who were following after Jesus. Simon encountered them as he was coming in, and they were coming out. And, 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 and we might think that these are all Jesus' followers, and there's probably a, a good amount of Jesus' disciples mixed in this great multitude. But listen, it wasn't uncommon uh, for a public execution to draw crowds of spectators, right? And, and, and that's likely what we're talking about here. People who wanted to watch these men be crucified. But in this crowd, we're told here in these verses that there was also this group of women who mourned and lamented as they sympathized with Jesus. And truly, these women were followers of Christ. And I'm not sure of the significance of this as I begin to study it out, but it's worth pointing out, as far as the gospel records are connected, no woman was ever an enemy of Jesus in the Gospels. And in the same way, contrary to what many, belong, what many believe today in our um, feministic society as it's come up, you know what? Jesus was never an enemy of womankind and his example and his teachings have done much to dignify and elevate women, more so than any other religion or any other teaching or any other philosophy that has ever come out of this world, into this world. And in verse 28, we see that Jesus recognized their compassion and sympathy, and he used it. He used it uh, to teach an important lesson as he spoke of this coming judgment in verses 29 through 31. But even while they were weeping, listen, even while they were weeping over the injustice of his death, Jesus was looking ahead. And in looking ahead, he was grieving over the future destruction of Jerusalem and the scattering of the entire nation, which we know took place. And history teaches us that this judgment came to pass first in 70 AD when the Hebrew people fortified themselves behind the, the, the surrounding, uh, behind the, the, the walls that surrounded this city of Jerusalem, the old city of Jerusalem today that we can go and visit. And in doing so, they held off a Roman general by the name of Titus. Titus was in command of three Roman legions, three legions of Roman soldiers. And for four months, the Jews held them outside of the city walls. However, Titus was a brilliant tactician. And his tactic in the situation to was allow for the Jews traveling into Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover feast there in 70 AD when this rebellion took place and, and, and they threw the Romans out is that, that he would allow for these travelers like Simon at that time in 70 AD to enter into the city, but he would let no one out. Consequently, this put a heavy strain, as you can imagine, on the city's water and food supplies. And when the people began to starve to death, the women and children, history teaches us that they first they suffered first. They suffered the most as the men who was defending the city in order to keep their strength ate what food was there. And eventually, you know, that Titus penetrated 
the walls of Jerusalem, and in 70 AD, he destroyed the temple like Jesus had prophesied to where there was not one stone left standing upon another. And the Jewish historian Josephus recorded that more than at this more at this time more than 1 million Hebrew people were killed and that also at this time that Titus took another 97,000 Jews captive and made them slaves and marched a significant number of those slaves back to Rome in a parade as he entered into the city of Rome. Now, in, in um, verse 31, Jesus had said that the nation of Israel had been like a green tree. Okay, that's what he's speaking about. That's what he's referring to there. During the years that he was with them, there was life. He was there, and he's saying, if they are willing to do this while I'm here, right? This is what it's saying. It had been a time of blessing. It had been a time of fulfillment of prophecy. It had been a time of opportunity, and, and it should have been a time of fruitfulness. You know, right now in our city, you know, Megan and, and, and I were driving back into town the other day from Pueblo, and she's all, Dad, our city is ugly this time of year. It's because all the trees are brown, right? They're in a dormant state. But we know when they begin to green back up and the leaves come back on them in the springtime that it's time to prepare for a harvest, for fruit, right, to come forth. And it should have been a time of fruitfulness. But the nation of Israel rejected Jesus and they became like a dry tree. Fit only for the fires of judgment. And it was if Jesus was saying, if the Roman authorities would do this to him who is innocent, what will they do to you who are guilty? As we see the connection to the prophecy and we look back historically upon what happened. And when the day of judgment arrives, he's saying, can there be any escape for you? But judgment is not what Jesus desires. In fact, guys, not more than a week prior to this, remember, it wasn't like Jesus was saying, fine, you're leading me off to be crucified. You're going to get yours, you know, and wringing his hands together like some kind of evil villain on a, on a TV show or something. Remember that just a week prior to this, Jesus had literally wept over Jerusalem and then over the nation's future rejection of him, which he knew was coming and had been coming. However, by condemning him, they had condemned themselves. They were already in the place of condemnation, and yet he had come to save them, and that's what, the world, that's what we're told in the book of John in chapter 3. We were already in the state of condemnation, yet Jesus Christ came to save us. And if we reject him, we remain standing in that place of judgment, in that place of condemnation. As we move on to verse 32, it tells us that there were also two other criminals, right? Two other criminals led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on, the spectators. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, this is so profound. They knew what Jesus had done. He had caused the lame to walk the blind to see. He raised the dead to life. And they said, He saved others. Let Him save Himself 
if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription was also written over him in the letters of, in, in the letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who had who, 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 who were hanged, blasphemed him, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us, just like the others below, except he's putting himself in there. And by the way, save me too. But the other, answering, rebuked him, rebuked the other thief on the cross, saying, do you not even fear God? See, you run to the same condemnation? And we indeed, listen to what he says, and we indeed justly, For we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. So on this road, leading up to Calvary, there with Jesus was Simon who carried the cross. A great multitude of spectators and the women who mourn. And according to what we read here in verse 32, there were also two others, it says, criminals. And we might think that's an odd mention, but there's, there's a conversation that takes place here, but that's an odd mention. And by the way, there were two criminals who were taken with him. But yet, what we're told is that these two others who were being led to death is that we see the significance of this when we remember prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. Because in that, in that passage of Scripture, this very thing had been prophesied about when it said that the Messiah, the suffering servant, would be numbered with the transgressors. And this was fulfilled literally as these two criminals were crucified with Jesus. One on the right side, it says by Luke, and the other on the left side. According to number 33, or to verse 33. And when we look to the, to the other Gospels in Matthew chapter seven, or 27, verse 38, we're told that these men were robbers, thieves. And I looked that Greek word up. These were not your ordinary thief, if you will. The, the Greek word here for robber, for, for, it's used in that translation, in, or it's listed in Matthew chapter 27, verse 8, is the word lace taste. And it means this, one who uses violence to rob openly. Now even today, when we look at people who are criminals, we see those who do violent crimes differently than those who don't. These guys were violent dudes, is what we're being told. That when they robbed people, they used violence to do so. In contrast to the the more kindly type of thief who may secretly enter into your house and try to steal something from your home without being noticed, right? Right? Now, they're both thieves, but these guys were openly violent in their process. And according to verse 41, by their own admission, they, unlike Jesus, knew they were guilty of their crimes. And and not that Jesus knew he was guilty. Jesus was innocent, but they were guilty of their crimes, and they knew it, and now they were being crucified for it, justly being crucified for it. (laughs) Now, verse 33 also tells us the place that Jesus was crucified was called Calvary. And if you remember, I pointed out that 
when we began this whole thing, that in this, these verses, it was around 9 a.m. It would have been around 9 a.m. probably beforehand so that Simon could get to the temple and prepare for prayer and to be a participating. But let's say around 9 a.m. when Jesus began his journey on the road or the hill up to the hill of Calvary. And you know, we don't know exactly how long it would have taken for Jesus to walk up the road. I don't want to speculate. The road that is now called the Via Dolorosa, which is Latin for the way of suffering. Go to the old city of Jerusalem and see the path that Christ probably walked on. And and if that is, in fact, the exact path which I've been on, I can tell you this. The distance from the Antonio Fortress, which we talked about last week where I shared the opportunity to teach last time we were there, that the distance from the Antonio Fortress to what is believed, and again, it's speculation, is believed to have been the crucifixion site, it's not a far distance. I'm here to tell you that. It's not a far distance. And I point this out because when, when, when they finally nailed Jesus to the cross, it, 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 could have been, it could have been as early as 10 in the morning. And it's not likely that it was past 11 in the morning. And we know that Jesus was hanging on the cross before noon because of what we read at the end of this chapter and other gospel accounts. Because like in Mark's gospel account here at the end of the chapter, we're told at noon in the sixth hour, that the sky went dark and it remained so until the ninth hour, or which would have been, translates into 3 p.m., at which time Jesus, who had been gasping for every breath, Scripture tells us, he cried out in a loud voice and breathed his last. And while Jesus hung nailed to the cross for up to five hours, the Gospels tell us that Jesus spoke seven times. Seven times in that potential five-hour period of time, Jesus spoke while hanging on the cross. And listen, the first words from his mouth as he hung there are in verse 34 where Jesus said this. It's mind-blowing. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. When Jesus prayed this, guys, he was exampling again what he had preached in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 28, when Jesus said this, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. But he's also, again, fulfilling a second part of prophecy and It's listed for us, the second part of that prophecy given in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, where it tells us that when the suffering servant would be numbered with the transgressors, he would also make intercession for them. And perhaps it was these words... Think about it. Jesus is hanging on the cross. You and I, like Barabbas, if we were to enter into this scene, we would be the thieves on the cross. Guilty of our sin. Deserving of death. And put yourselves into that scene, hanging on the cross, and Jesus speaks these words, and it was these words of love and grace spoken by Jesus, I think, that led these two criminals finally to speak to Jesus 
as they hung there together. And in verse 39, we're told that the first thief to speak was the one who spoke evil of him and said, if you are blasphemous things, evil of him. If you're the Christ, save yourself and us. Of course, he was probably mocking. And then in verse 42, the other thief spoke after confessing his guilt. That's significant. After confessing his guilt in verse 41, he spoke and he asked for mercy when he called Jesus Lord. It says it all for me. Lord. Not rabbi, but Lord. And he asked to be remembered when he entered his kingdom. And this cry for mercy, it's literally a cry for mercy, is what prompted Jesus to speak for the second time while there, nailed and hanging to the cross. And he answered the man and he said, you shall be with me in paradise. And I think it's clear how this account is one of the greatest examples in all of Scripture of the salvation of God that comes by grace through faith. Because it's obvious that this thief, first of all, he did not deserve forgiveness. He's a, he's a violent, you know, thieves are bad, right? If you've been robbed, it's, you're like, I don't care if it's violent or nonviolent. That is not fun. But even the violent type, he was like, he's the bad of the bad. If we want to try to grade on the curve, not like God does, but we do. So we seek to compare ourselves among ourselves. Scripture says not to do. But this thief, he didn't deserve it. He didn't deserve forgiveness. He didn't deserve the eternal life that Jesus had promised. And at this point, there was nothing he could do to earn it. Yet his salvation was personal. Today, you will be with me. It was secure, personally guaranteed by the words of Jesus Christ. And the man hoped for some kind of help in the future, but Jesus gave him forgiveness that very day, and he died and went to be with Jesus in paradise. And I think it needs to be pointed out that Jesus brought a thief out of sin and into salvation, and he did it, what we might say, is in the nick of time. But listen, guys, we must never use the thief who hung on the cross that day as an excuse to delay in making our own decision to put our faith in Jesus for salvation. Because the fact of the matter is this man was, was probably saved at his first opportunity since there's no evidence that he had ever met Jesus before. At his first opportunity. Verse 44, as we continue on, we read and it says, Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion, we talked about this guy last week, when the centurion, this Roman centurion, saw what had happened, and this guy was the guy who had probably been with Jesus through this whole thing. When they saw what happened, he glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. The whole crowd came together to that site, seeing what had been done. And they beat their breasts in return. But all of his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now, in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verses 25 through 27, it records 
I want to keep the timeline straight in regards to the things that Jesus spoke because we read something here. But in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 25 to 27, it records the third time that Jesus spoke from the cross. And at that time, it was directed to his mother when he said this, Woman, behold your son. And then he turned to the apostle, the apostle John, and he said, Behold your mother. And by doing this, Jesus was taking his mother, Mary, and placing her into John's care. And in doing so, listen, he finalized his business here on the earth. That's powerful to me, guys, especially in the culture and society that we live in. Because in doing so, I think Jesus gave us another example for the command that we read in the Old Testament for children to honor their mother and father. And that as adults, one of the ways that we even can honor our parents is to consider their well-being and to look after them in their time of need. And I think culturally we've lost sight of that. But biblically, I think there's a mandate for it. And in doing so, Jesus gave us this example. And after entrusting Mary into the care of John the Apostle, verse 44 here tells us that it was about the sixth hour, which was noon, and there was darkness all over the earth for three hours until the ninth hour during those the, the, these three hours of darkness, what we know is that Jesus was silent. No words. Silent. This, was, this, is, this is my opinion. I always want to clarify that. It's not biblical. It's not, it's not even extra biblical. It's just my opinion. But I believe it was during this time of darkness that the innocent and perfect Son of God, who knew no sin... As Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6 says, I believe this was when the iniquity of all of us was laid upon him. All of creation recognized it. And in that moment, according to verse 45, look, the veil of the temple was torn into two. And this veil was called the veil of separation. It was the veil in the temple. It stood between the holy and the most holies. The Bible teaches us that at this point it was between 16 and 18 inches thick. Veil might not be the right word for it. Barrier. Wall. You know, it was between 18 and, and 16 and 18 inches thick. And its purpose was to separate the people from the holy part of the temple to the place where God would manifest himself from, to the high priest. In fact, the only person allowed behind this veil of separation was the high priest, and it was once a year on the Day of Atonement, and only with, here it goes, the blood of the atoning sacrifice, the sacrifice lamb, as who was offered what well, was offered for the sins of the nation. But this veil at this time, in this moment, was torn in two from top to bottom, as if the very hands of God had reached down and tore it open like a phone book, showing that showing us that man through Jesus now had access to come to God. Why? Because the sins of all of us were put on Jesus, who is the sacrificial Lamb of God. If the worship team wants to come up, the other times that Jesus spoke here in verse, uh, what uh, next was um, uh, in Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, where Jesus said this, at, when he spoke after the darkness, he said this, is another reason why I think at this point the, the sin was put upon him and the, the whole earth went dark and Jesus was silent. He said this, why? Hast thou forsaken me? 
And he said, I thirst. And then he said, and that's in John chapter 19, verse 28. Then in John chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus said, it is finished. And then lastly, in, in, in um, Luke chapter 23 here in verse 46, he says this, Father, into thy hands. Verse 50. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, speaking of the Sanhedrin, a good and just man. And he had not consented to the decision indeed, and he was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. And this man went to Pilate, and he asked for the body of Jesus. And then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb. It was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew near, and the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after him, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices, fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandments. Jesus was crucified to death on a cross. He was buried in a grave. And three days later, he rose again into life. Listen, guys, historically speaking, criminals who had been condemned lost the right to a decent burial. But God had Joseph of Arimathea, and then when we look to John chapter 19, verses 38 through 42, we also hear of a man named Nicodemus. And Joseph and Nicodemus, God had prepared them to care for Christ's body after his death. And the service they performed, think about it, they part of the religious elect. They had to have paid a price when the other council members found out what they had done. They were not ashamed to take up the cross and to follow after Jesus Christ and to do it publicly. And I'll end with this if you'll stand. When you are confronted by the cross of Jesus Christ, when you come to the cross, there's a cost. There's a cost in light of this decision that has to be made. A decision to take up your cross and follow after Jesus Christ and die to self and living wholeheartedly after Him. Or a decision not to. But understand there's a cost. But it's a cost that far outweighs the return that is given to you. Eternal life, forgiveness of sins, joy forevermore. And if you're here this morning and if you never made that decision to follow after Christ, I want you to hear that there is a cost. But whatever you lay down will be repaid or you'll be rewarded through the death of Jesus Christ far greater than what you ever will will be set free from it. And that's what it is. We think that we're hanging on to it, that it's somehow a benefit to us. And God says that I want to set you free from it. It's holding you in bondage. This morning, if that's you, I would encourage you to come forward after this song. There will be people up here praying.